0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode two of the Commercial Real Estate Library podcast edition. I'm Dama Taminawala, And with me today, I'm actually joined by my good friend and co-host, Sim Minocha. Today, we're talking with Marcus Gillum. Now, why does that name sound so familiar to you? Well, it could be because you know the Gillum Group. Marcus is the founder and CEO of Gillum Group, which is actually in 2017, was the fastest growing company in Canada. according to the Profit 500, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. They're a general contracting company uh, and construction management company. So today we're gonna be diving deep into that world. How did Marcus build this company? How did he get his humble beginnings? What is happening in the industry? What tech is influencing the industry? And so much more. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy.
1: Hi, everyone. It's Sim Minocha and Dama Tamanawala from Siri Library. We are very excited today to have Marcus Gillum with us from Gillum Group. Marcus, uh, I'm well aware of, sort of some of your past experiences. Number one on Profit 500 for fastest growing company, working a lot with both public sector and private sector clients, and obviously, you're a well-known family man. So for those of you who don't know you, tell us a little bit more about yourself.
2: Sure. Okay. Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here meeting yeah. with you guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I always love talking about industry and, and uh, what's happening. And uh, so uh, I'm Marcus Gillum. I, I, I'm the president of Gillum Group. Um, this is a construction management company that I started just uh, about seven and a half years ago uh, based in Toronto. And so um, you know, Gillum Group was set up really just to focus on medium sized projects in the ICI and residential sectors. Yeah. And so I felt, you know, before um, starting the company, that there was a real uh, opportunity for a, a really good construction company operating in that niche, right? Uh, one that uh, was relationship-based, and that was a real driver in terms of, uh, the, you know, the origination of Gillum Group. So um, I can give you a little bit of history. So, you know, I, I'm not sort of new to construction. I, I grew up in the industry. Uh, my, my father, uh, back in the early '90s. Bought into a company called Van Bots Construction, which you might remember. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. When in those days, when he bought into Van Bots, the company had about 20 employees, and it was really just a local market-based construction company. Although it had a 50-year history of uh, operating in Toronto. Right. So, uh, when he joined, uh, it was it was a tough time. It was in the 90s. There was not a lot of work to go around. As you know, we were our industry yeah. was still reeling from the recession in those days, right? And so, but he, he brought with him some relationships, you know, a good track record, and he began to grow the business, and so just focusing mainly on sort of working with clients through collaborative means, like mainly through uh, like a very client oriented uh, servicing approach, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, using the construction management methodologies, yeah. And uh, which was also unique in those days, because you know most of the work was procured using a like a fixed price model, and had been for decades. So, so he was a bit of a disruptor in, in that time. So one of the pioneers of construction management. I think so, absolutely. Interesting. So so I, I grew up uh, in that kind of environment. You know, as as uh, uh, as I reached my early teens, I, I would always talk to my father about construction and. You tell me about some of the struggles he, he was going through, um, and uh, and so when I uh, he made it very uh, clear to me that when I turned 16, I would be working on job sites. Yeah, <laughs> and so that, that's precisely what happened. So uh, you know, when I turned 16, you know that first summer, uh, I, I started working on construction sites as a laborer. Whereabouts in and
0: Markham or?
2: Just all all around Toronto. I worked on mm-hmm. many different sites. Yeah, uh, but you know, I was I was a laborer, and um, you know, I, I had. Jobs like uh, you know carrying materials, uh, right. doing maybe very basic sort of carpentry work, mm-hmm. um, you know cleaning up. I spent a lot of time pushing a broom, cleaning yeah. up. Yeah, um, you know I spent one summer, pretty well the entire summer, just excavating by hand, like wow. digging with a shovel for the wow. entire summer. Yikes! Backbreaking so, work. Absolutely, <laughs> it, was, it was wide ranging work, you know. But um, I, I was pretty well paid for what I was doing, yeah. which was nice. And so when I back to school during the school year, I, I had a little bit of spending money, which was nice. Yep. Right. Uh, but, you know, I always looked forward to going back uh, in those days. It was, it was tough work. It was very tough. I think I really gained an appreciation for what people go through on construction sites, yeah. some of the challenges. And uh, I also experienced a lot of camaraderie because, you know, there was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of uh, Portuguese, Italians yeah. working on sites. And, uh, you yeah. know, Although, although, I never learned the language, you, you you learn kind of you know a sight-based sign language. Yeah. <laughs> Good and bad. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so that, that was sort of the foundation. So I did that for many years, and then uh, I, I studied engineering at Queen's University, and uh, so I I began to get into more of the the office side of the business after right. I graduated and. I worked in our estimating department for many years. Uh, I worked in um, a few different offices because at that time uh, the company had grown and we had offices in various places. And then in uh, 1999, I went to, uh, to move to the UK because our company had acquired a very large contract with Honda Manufacturing to, to build a million square foot mm. manufacturing facility. Okay. In Swindon, England. Wow. So I went out. Whereabouts is Swindon?
1: Is that uh, nor- sort of north of Manchester, south of Manchester, north of London? Yep. So so it's in the Cotswolds, which is a really
2: beautiful area, rolling hills, a lot of country pubs, and it's about uh, just over an hour west of London. Mm. Interesting. so I spent several years there I delivered this project which was which was fascinating and it was really I think for me the first exposure to kind of lean working methods yeah mm-hmm. around that time uh, I think so, reports had come out in the UK just documenting some of the problems in industry right and, and this project sort of bucked the trend because we were able to do achieve a, a lot with with the very lean staff
0: right and so what would be kind of your day-to-day on a project like that? Like, what are, what are you doing in
2: there? Well, I, I was a junior project manager, and so I had a few responsibilities. I, I had a responsibility to manage some of the ancillary buildings that we yeah. were building. I also uh, had to oversee the, the construction schedule. So we had about a, um, probably 7,000, uh, you know, activity construction schedule that I had to develop and kind of update and manage. I thought that, spent, wow. that was a large part of my responsibility doing that. We also had to coordinate the the process works yeah. along the side of the base building, so it was a lot of coordination, a lot of meetings. Um, it, it, we also learned sort of the Honda way of of managing and organizing, which which was fascinating. And so, uh, you know, in that experience, we were wearing the same uniform as our client. We worked in the client's office, right? And so we we had to adopt many of their lean working practices. So, for example. Uh, every morning we had what they call a circle meeting, just a five-minute meeting, uh, and you brief everybody on on what you're doing that day and and what your key uh, deliverables are for that day. Wow. Okay. Every morning
0: keeps everyone accountable. Absolutely,
2: absolutely. And there there were a lot of it, it was it was a tough project. We had a difficult client. Uh, it was very demanding. Um, it was a tough project just with the, the trades that we had on on the project. Yeah. And um, the client really really uh, looked at us as, as an extension of their organization. and they they wanted best
1: value for their money. Mm -hmm. Right. And when you're going international, I I would assume that obviously the sub-trades for sure would be different than over here in in the GTA, Mm. and the trades would be different. So sort of how did that work when you went out there as a a Toronto-based project manager going out to England Mm. for the first time? What was the process like in terms of figuring out the system, and and how did you execute on that?
2: Yeah, it was quite a cultural shock. Um, (laughs) Just from the first few minutes that you arrive in the UK, you know, you're driving on the left side of the road, right? and, <laughs> yeah. and, and not yep. only that, if you're renting a car, you got to figure out how to drive around a roundabout, on the yeah. left side. Yeah. Right? So yep. it, it's it's there there were a few close calls, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, they're, they're, yeah, there's a different working culture there, right? And I would say that there, the, the UK industry is more mature than our local industry. Interesting. Um, and I think the way that plays out is that. Um, there, there's, there's more of a what I'd call like a blame-claim culture over there, uh, right? Okay. So when, when you're trying to manage sub-trades, um, they're very slippery, and they're very sophisticated, and they know all sorts of ways of coming back and asking for extras. Right. Mm. And, and there's also generally, a, a, I think, a reluctance to really uh, uh, work in a highly collaborative way. Uh, and I think to a certain extent, our industry has some of these symptoms as well, but, but people always want to fall back. On, on how they were trained, uh, uh, with respect to management, what we were trying to do in that project was really push the limits on on collaboration to really, uh, right. you know, collaborate on steroids and and, okay. and do something special. So, um, you know, how can the, we the, do
0: a bunch of stuff correctly instead of being worried about getting blamed for something that goes wrong?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. So right. so our client uh, was very experienced. They had. Uh, a long and successful track record of delivering projects, but they had an awful experience the last time they did a major expansion, and that project resulted in claims and delays, mm. extra costs, and a lot of deficient work that, mm-hmm. that remained with Honda and was a big problem. So Honda was determined not to let that happen again. Right. So when they went through the selection process, right, for their construction manager, they had a shortlisted three companies. They had shortlisted our company, you know, the Canadian company. Yep. Mm. They had a Japanese company, and they had an English company. And so, I'm not sure how true it is, but rumor had it that the the Japanese manager wanted the Japanese company, the English manager wanted the English company. They couldn't agree, and so they chose the Canadian company. <laughs> <team. laughs> we actually worked pretty hard to, to win that that um, contract, and and you know, we had a lot of good. Uh, I think very unique aspects to our approach but it was cer- it was like more like a joint venture with this client. Right. And, and there was an emphasis on generally lean management there was an emphasis on uh, proactive management mm. and and just just a um, high degree of collaboration so uh, we did lots of things we so to, to pull the the sub-trade team together it actually started with with our pre-qualification process which included interviews and many of the interviews were were um, uh, they had a, a ba- they for many of the questions in the interview had questions that were founded on culture because okay. this client wanted to bring together a team with with a very consistent cultural fit. Yeah, and, and and which 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 I think is genius because now fast forward a little bit, my company is involved in doing a new type of construction, new type of contract called integrated project delivery (IPD). Okay, um, and that kind of contracting and I'd say any kind of successful venture is going to involve working with people and, and success is really dictated by how well you can work with other people. Yeah. Right. When you think back to maybe your, your best working experiences, it probably involves a successful collaboration with other people. So so in 1999, this is what Honda was trying to do. They wanted to pull together uh, a, a team that, that would turn into a high performing team. And right. a large part of that is cultural fit.
0: So, so how do you how do you go about interviewing somebody on culture? Mm-hmm. What is that process look like? Because you must
1: be doing that all the time now, as <laughs> yeah. well as being yeah, interviewed yeah, on yeah, culture yeah. when you were when you were getting. No, them, that's true, know. absolutely. And I think
2: you know, you, you, you want to ask questions that, that um, like that maybe are like uh, sort of scenario based questions, like if you were in this kind of scenario, how would you handle this or that? Right. Okay. Or you know, what's your view on quality? Right. Right. Uh, you know, uh, what's. How can you work with us to to uh, in, in a partnership role, or do you have examples of where you've done JVs or partnerships with with clients before? Yeah. So these kind of questions, uh, the client also spent a lot of time with us in our offices in Markham, mm-hmm. right, um, and also on some of our job sites. So I think through that process, they they wanted to sort of learn about us just through osmosis, just yeah, you know, by observing our behavior, not not just. Listening to us, but by observing it in in
1: practice. Yeah, it's it's more of a yeah practice as opposed to pitching. Right, if you, anyone can pitch and say that they do something, but once you actually see it in action, makes it makes the world of a difference. Right. Oh, absolutely. So, so
2: but it, there were some really cool things about this project. Like number one, um, the traditional approach in the UK is to enter into very onerous, like one-sided subcontracts where. Yeah. Where general contractors or clients try to push as much risk downstream as possible. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I think Honda felt that if they entered into those kind of contracts, that it would it would preclude any kind of collaboration. So they felt that their contracts needed to be much more fair and and balanced. So this, the contracts were, were very slim, um, and and there was really an emphasis on proactive management. So on that project, mm-hmm. we had a we used a lot of. Forward-looking tools like scheduling was a was a, was a very important component management okay. tool, uh, not not just the overall project schedule, but um, using look-ahead schedules. So looking using a say like a three-week or a four-week look-ahead schedule, that that was mandatory on that project. And so that forced uh, our our company and our trades to to plan the work. Right. Sounds simple, but mm-hmm. if you're not forcing somebody into that kind of discipline, it often doesn't happen. Yeah. people to show up and Just and, and they look can't, up after right, 6 months they, they can't do oh my it. god we're they, behind they, schedule <laughs> exactly exactly right. so proactive planning of works and we also had uh, what we called an early warning system so that if 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 a trade contractor was ever delayed in in their work yeah uh, or or if, if they if they forecasted a delay then then the parties were obligated to get together and work out a solution you know, in real time, rather than you know waiting for a delay to happen and then months later trying to deal with it. And, and yeah. Honda's philosophy was that um, if 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 a some kind of extra cost is being crystallized, then they want to have control over what over that money. They want to have control over you know how that money is being spent. Mm-hmm. Right. Where in, in the predominant behavior in the UK is that at the end of a project. You know, your trades and your GC come at you as the client with a whole bunch of extras mm. Yeah. that you never agreed to. And right. if you don't agree to it, then they litigate. So it, it's, it's a very, very challenging way to do business, and Honda didn't want any part of that.
1: Right. So it sounds like, um, from my understanding of project management, uh, there's a few levers that you can sort of help. So if you have quality, if you're looking for a high-quality project, uh, and you're willing to spend the time, then you're going to have an increased cost. If you want to save a bit of cost uh, and have... a uh, quicker project then that quality might sometimes be sacrificed so what sort of were the levers that they were focused on um, pushing and which ones were they okay with letting slide a little bit more
2: yeah well they, they wanted all three they wanted to have key they wanted to have, <laughs> sure. key key wanted to have everything okay. <laughs> just like everybody else yeah but I guess you know it's um, you know it's a process and, and I think you know construction in good construction involves strategy but also a lot of tactics. Yeah, you know, and, and I think the I think the key was that, uh, in in this case, the client uh, was willing to not to talk the talk but also to walk the walk. So in many in some cases there were extra costs that were unavoidable, mm-hmm. and they were very fair and reasonable in, in dealing with those things, you know, right? Like
1: to, to not sacrifice quality. quality. Correct. Right. Correct. Okay. Can you yeah.
0: tell us about some of the bigger hurdles that, I mean, a million square feet is still big today. So back, Absolutely. back Absolutely. then, it, it even, it's monstrous, right? So, Absolutely. Um, so what sort of challenges did you go through, and-
2: On that project, there, there were all sorts of things. There was the, thing was weather. So there was a lot of rain, right. and we had, we had major earthworks to do, I think we had to raise the whole site by something like a meter. Okay. And so there was a lot of fill that was brought onto the site. Right. So there, there was the, the earthworks. There was the um, coordination of the concrete work with the steel work. Um, there was another unique challenge. Also, was was uh, coordinating the completion of the base building with the the start of the process works, because okay. the, these process contractors, you know, they they're, they specialize in things like uh, conveyor systems, robotics, hmm. uh, control systems. Uh, they're, they're not used to working on construction sites. Right. They're also not used to working according to, I would say, very stringent um, ske- and fast-track schedules. Yeah. U- usually, they work on sort of evenings and weekends, you know, working around plant production. In this case, they, they were part of the main build, and, right. and in many cases, they, they were not from the UK. They were from other countries, oh, okay. such as Japan, oh, um, and, okay. and they had their own uh, working methods and safety uh, standards that they're used to working to, which are different than local standards. Right. So, so, a large part of it was, was just um, you know, getting them to, to, to buy into our management framework. And the, the, the client actually was very complimentary to uh, Canadian construction management. Yeah, they, One of the reasons they selected us was, was because they, they really liked how we manage our sites. And I'm not talking solely about the VanBots way, just talking about generally how Mm-hmm. top-tier Canadian GCS manage their sites like mm. the, the in the UK it's not as uh, efficient or, or uh, schedule oriented right I think the site managers take I think in some cases more of a backseat. And so this client didn't want the backseat he, he wanted he wanted people to be driving the
1: project driving the schedule right. you know, using these management tools at the face of the project mm. So obviously spent some time in the UK there. What was it like coming back? What, what happened after that? Yeah, so I, I spent
2: uh, a few more years in Europe. I did an MBA in Holland. Right. I worked for Barclays Bank, mm-hmm. and I worked in their facilities department managing their, their projects throughout the UK and Europe, which was exactly. very interesting. Yeah. They were growing rapidly at that time. And then uh, I decided to come back to, to uh, Canada in 2005. I felt uh, that um, you know I, after living as a local for a while, Sort of the novelty wears off. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of great things. I, I lived in London, uh, you know, the last part of my stay in the UK. And London's an incredible city. Mm-hmm. Very mm-hmm. diverse, amazing place. But uh, I, I felt that, you know, we've got something special in in Toronto and Canada. We've got a quality of life that doesn't exist anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. so that, that was the driving factor. I, d- I decided I had to make a decision. I, am I going to spend my career in the UK or Canada? So I decided to come back. And at that point, I kind of rejoined Van Watts. Um, but there were some interesting things happening. Um, within within three years of me coming back, we ended up selling our company to Carillion, mm-hmm. a large UK based organization. Right. So, so Carillion uh, had worked with Alice Dunn on some of the, the first P3 projects that were uh, created by. Uh, you know, the predecessor to Infrastructure Ontario. Okay. okay. Those projects had gone very well. And I, I, my understanding is that um, the McGuinty government was now moving to create Infrastructure Ontario and create mm. this P3 program. So however, Ellis Dunn felt they didn't need Carillion as a partner anymore. Mm. So Carillion had this experience of working in Canada, but they didn't have a vehicle to, by which to deliver P3. Right. So it made a lot of sense to, to do this deal. So the stars had kind of aligned, I think, for my father and the shareholders because mm-hmm. the at that around that 2007-2008 time, the economy was pretty shaky. Like nobody knew where it was going to go. Yeah. Um, and it's not every day that you've got these large suitors knocking on your door asking to buy a large construction company. Right. Mm-hmm. Often it can be very difficult to sell construction companies. So is so this
0: so this the sale was happening in the in the thick of the economic crisis? Yes. yes. Okay.
2: So, Carillion was unfazed because they looked at this committed program of P3s. Yeah. And they, 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 they were confident that they were going to do well uh, with that program. And so, uh, I did the deal. And um, I ended up working as a, as a vice president for Carillion. My, my job was to, uh, to pursue and to win P3 bids. Right. And I thought it was fascinating. I was involved in many deals, I was involved in Bridgepoint Hospital, yep. uh, Cam the uh, forensic services and coroners complex, mm. um, the uh, Quincy courthouse, and uh, also what else? The uh, Penitangushi
1: mental health facility uh, and uh, Humber River Regional Hospital. If you don't mind, uh, just pausing there and uh, walking us through how the bid process works on infrastructure versus on real estate. Sure. Mm. Yeah. So P3s
2: uh, stand for public-private partnership. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a model that was created by Infrastructure Ontario with a lot of input from other agencies, including UK agencies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea behind P3 is that you, you, you place the risk with the parties that are best placed to manage that risk. Mm. So in, in this case, the private sector. Mm-hmm. The, there's been many examples where the, pri- the public sector has not done a very good job in managing that risk. Right. So under P3 you're pushing a lot of risk onto the private sector. So under the IO program, they often refer to these projects as uh, DBFMs or DBFs or other variations where a DBFM is design build finance maintain. So so as a proponent, you know, you're, you're entering into a contract with with you know a project sponsor to design their facility mm. to 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 build it right to finance design and construction yeah. also to maintain it for 30 years and then to also finance that maintenance so um, so you're basically entering into a like a fixed price contract to design build finance and maintain you know, this asset
1: over the over the construction period and the 30 year concession period mm-hmm. and the range in asset type could be anything from subway lines to Hydro, anything like that, right? What else? What are some other things that you'll see in, in infrastructure, P3s? Well, yeah,
2: right now, there's a great emphasis on transit. Mm-hmm. Um, that mm-hmm. wasn't the case when I was working in P3. It was more social infrastructure, Okay. Right. so courthouses, um, data centers, hospitals, right. and a few other things. But that that was the, the bulk of the program at that point. Mm-hmm. The program has matured a little bit, just as it has in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it, it was a fascinating experience. Like I, I, I learned so much working with these people at Carillion, some great people, very talented, very skilled people. Yeah. Uh, you know, learning from the, uh, the their facilities management team, which were top of their game. You know, learning from their finance people, uh, learning from uh, you know other, other divisions of Carillion.
1: It was really it was it was a fun time, and so and and we were successful. We won several P three mm-hmm. bids. So, it's a sort of a, a bid and tender process for the infrastructure side. So, how about on the real estate side? Then, how does that bidding process work in terms of attracting high quality developers and making sure that the project is scalable and, and fits within your group's mm. core competency?
2: Sure. Well, um, uh, I mean, my approach now is different than what we did mm-hmm. at Carillion. So, um, like, I, I, I learned a lot in P3, but when I, when I left Carillion and started my own business, um, I took some very key, I would say, lessons learned, right, from that P3 process to yeah. my own business, which I'm happy to talk about. Um, but, you know, the, the, the P3 process is, is really, um, there, there's, there's only a handful of players that can do it well. And those I'll are the start. players who have won most of the work, yeah. you know, here in Ontario. But, you know, to be honest, I'm quite happy to get out of P3. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very, very difficult, very demanding delivery method. Yeah. And so and it's, it's a real grind. It is a serious, serious grind. So I don't miss it. <laughs> I, I learned a lot okay. from it, but I don't miss it. <laughs>
0: um, can you tell us about the moment when, so the business is sold, uh, and when you're figuring things out, and then how you decided to start the
2: Gillum Group? Sure. So, um, well, so after being in the P3 game for about three years, the learning curve began to plateau a little bit, and, um, you know, I saw Carillion. Uh, making strides in P3, but at the expense of other sectors and other types of construction. Mm. And I also uh, didn't like the idea of just um, working on transactions. Right. Right. Like, like to me, yeah, it was just was not meaningful. Right, like I just didn't get a kick out of transactions. Yeah,
0: hands-on problem-solving, dealing with the trades. Well, that's it, right? It's
2: not relationships. And what I do,
1: it's relationship-based. What Dama does, it's all about long-term relationships. And there's a lot of transactions along the way, but it's maintaining those relationships and fostering them that leads to a transaction. But our approach, both of ours, has always been more on the relationship side, and I'm sure it's the same for you. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, you know, I, I I thought back, you know, romantically to
2: the earlier, like VanBots days, right, yeah. and, and we made our company, we grew this company on the basis of relationships, and right. we had, uh, you know, uh, many repeat clients that would come to us continually, many of these repeat clients were blue chip clients, and, uh, and so I, I just love the idea of doing good work, yeah. and, and getting, you know, a, a handshake and a pat on the back for doing a good job, mm-hmm. right. and just and enjoying, enjoying the process. And so that that was the genesis to to Gillen Group. I thought, you know, that that kind of approach, that service, doesn't really exist as as far as I knew, in in that mid space.
0: Right. Does that talking a little bit about family, what does that conversation go with uh, How does the conversation go with your partner? Or like, did you have kids at the time? Say, so, hey, I want to start this uh, this new company and this new journey. What do you think? Like, how do you? How does that happen?
2: Well, it's funny because I, I think I think I've always had some kind of entrepreneurial entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. And you know, even while working at Carillion, I would have these sort of business ideas, mm-hmm. uh, and I would talk to my I'd bounce them off my wife, saying, "What do you think about this and about that?" Yeah. And she was always lukewarm with the ideas, but when I came home one evening and said, "I'm thinking about starting my own construction company," she said, "That's the best idea I ever heard come up with." Yeah. <laughs> Of all your ideas, all your crazy ideas, <laughs> wow. that's the best one. And so, um, so you know, I, I looked at it from lucky, a, a lucky man. Yeah, yeah. So she was on board from the beginning.
1: Well, and I mean, it's I what it's what you know, right? It's what you've done before. Mm. You've been proven success. And I mean, why not? If you know something very well, why not try doing it on your own? And, and yeah. on your own, it's never on your own, right? I mean, I, I know whenever I'm doing anything, it's always with partners, right? And I'm imagining it's the same with you. You have a to be on the Profit Five Hundred as the fastest-growing company, I'm, I'm imagining there's a lot of partners that you've formed along the way, and, yeah. and and employees and subtrades, everything like that. It's once again, it goes back to the relationships, right? So, can you speak to that a bit? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think my my success
2: is is um, you know very very closely related to I think to that approach of relationships. Like, I wouldn't be in business today if I didn't have the relationships that I have with the local market. And, and you know, I'm talking about um, like people, employees, mm-hmm. people that work for me. I'm talking about trade contractors that support us. Yeah, you know, as a construction management company or GC, you ninety know, percent of the work is done by trades and suppliers. Mm, and right. so, if, if you don't have their support, you, you can't be in business. But also uh, clients and consultants, you know, architects, engineers. It's all part of this this network of relationships. And yeah. You know. You, and that, that's the real key to success. You're essentially balancing relationships. Yeah. Um, and so, it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's of vital importance to the success of any business. And it's been a real focus uh, of, of our company since the very beginning.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the first project and how, that, how you went about getting it and how that kind of transpired? Yeah.
2: Well, it's interesting that the first project that we won was, I would say, Probably our, our flagship project. Yeah, mm-hmm. this was the um, Branksome Hall Athletic and Wellness Facility on yeah. Mount Pleasant Road, mm-hmm. and so um, we were invited to participate in the competitive process. So we put in a proposal, and ultimately we won the project, and we were appointed as the client's construction manager. Okay. And. Um,
0: so okay, so this is your first project, but you already have a team behind you. How many people? When you say we, how many people are we talking about? Right.
2: So. When, when this opportunity arose, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I had to resign from Carillion to pursue the opportunity. Right. And I felt that it was it was worth doing that. Right. So I resigned and then I got working on the proposal. So yeah, you know, we, we had to submit details of our, our team, for yep. example. So I had to go find a team. Right. right. Before I even had a first project. And so I was able to do that. I was able to go out and, and find not just a an average team, but extraordinary team. Yeah. for this project that, that had a lot of experience in delivering those kind of projects successfully, yeah. but also uh, a, a team that I had a close working relationship with over years, mm-hmm. and yeah. I knew it was the right cultural fit. So, mm-hmm. so um, that, that team was invited to the interview. Yeah. And so, um, you know, and, and that, it was vital. It was vital to, to winning that, that, that project. So we just put together a cracking team Yeah, and and, uh, you know I was closely involved in the project, Um, but the the, the challenge is that we had we had about a year right before construction was going to start. Okay. And and you know you can't be a construction company or a very good construction company if you're not building anything. Right. And so so even though we had this just amazing project in Mm. the pipeline, um, we still had to find other opportunities right you know, yes. to get going. Right. Yeah. And so so I think the very first contract I got was a was a, a forty thousand dollar contract to build a, a high security vestibule for a data center company. Interesting. And I remember we, we, we put in a bid, our, our price was half the price of the, <laughs> of the other no, not good. <laughs> and so the client invited us in and he he, he told us that we were pretty low. Yeah. And he said, are you comfortable? And, and we reviewed our quantities and our rates and everything was fine. He said, oh, by the way, can you get a bond, a performance bond? Mm. And I sort of laughed and I thought, in, in my whole career, I don't think I've ever had to get a bond for something so small. Yeah. Right. So so I went to the bonding company and I had a bonding facility. Yeah. And, and the, the bonding company said, well...
0: Can you just it, explain uh, a little bit about what the bond is just for people sure. who might not know? Sure. So,
2: so a, a bond is essentially an insurance product that insures uh, a client. Against any kind of losses mm. uh, relating to uh, a contractor's failure to perform, yeah, and it's got a, a limit to it, which is usually fifty percent of the contract price. Right. Okay. So this client For was 40, thinking to himself, kind of yeah. "I'm not sure these guys are up to it, but they took a chance on us, yeah. and it was a great job. So I, I, my estimator, ended up being the project manager and the superintendent. Mm. Uh, I, I had a few hats, I was the IT guy, I also was a laborer on the job site, wow. a carpenter. We had to build hoarding, you know, evenings and weekends, That's move awesome. it around, but, you know, we, 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 we did a good job on the project, we made money, and after that, the, the client um, came back to us for another four projects after that, wow, um, and they realized they were getting hosed by, uh, by their other supplier, yeah. who they had been relying on for a long time. So we, we developed a new relationship out of that that we still maintain to this day. Yeah. So uh, it, it was it was a very interesting experience. But anyways, that, that's how it went. And so the, the consultant involved in that project liked our work and they yeah. referred us to some other people. And around this time, we were knocking on doors and just reconnecting with many of our former clients. Yeah. And, and some of them... Took a an approach like, okay, we're gonna wait and see how you guys do. Right. And a little risky few, right now. Right. There were a few who put up their hand and said, yeah, I want to work with you. Right. And and uh, I think for them, it, it was for that group, it was a great opportunity because we were, uh, you know, very hungry and we had very aggressive uh, fees, yeah. right. And and we put a lot of time and effort. We still do. Yeah. But but um, you know the the, the anyways, it, it was it was a good process and and. Uh, basically started to grow the company, and as as, um, as the company grew, I, I, I hired people that I knew, that I trusted, people that I had worked with before, right. people that I had a long-term working history with, and in those early days, we had a lot of discussions around uh, the culture of the company. I remember when we were only maybe eight people, and having meetings as a company uh, dedicated solely to culture. We talked about, mm. you know, what, what sort of things? Do we do we want to have in our culture? What sort of things do we not want to have? And and what sort of things have people been exposed to at other businesses that that we would like to bring into this company? Yeah. And so th- those were those are really key discussions to uh, you know I guess informing our our values and our approach. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's really rare in a new organization to be thinking that proactively. Usually, it's just get a bunch of people in a room. Okay, go 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 go. What can we do to get business right? So that's. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's had a huge impact on the way that you, you've you been able to grow. So.
2: Absolutely. I mean, there, there was a lot of that, too. Right? <laughs> we, we, we made time for the cultural piece.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> so what are some of those things that dive a bit deeper in that you saw other people or whether it be competitors or firms outside of that industry doing that you wanted to sort of implement into your business and some of the things you wanted to make sure you avoided, especially being a, a GC? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, for us,
2: this has been a journey. You know, We've had the... I would say, an advantage of starting with a blank canvas, ha- having had a successful business before. Um, and it makes it maybe a little bit easier, right? Or maybe you start, you're start starting off a little better informed than, yeah. than otherwise. Uh, but it's still an enormous challenge for building any business, right? And, and nothing comes easy at all. Um, and so, you know, I think, um, I, I, th- I think I was very fortunate in that I got some really, really good people. You know, as the company grew, we brought great people in, and there was always a focus on hiring good people. We're, and and there was always a focus on cultural fit, and that's never that's never changed. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think that focus has been uh, just crucial, right? Yeah. To just to building the kind of organization that I'm happy to have. Yeah. But there's there's been bumps. There's been a lot of bumps in the way. We've had to develop uh, processes along the way, um, systems. Um, you know, and and you know if i was to uh, turn the clock back i would probably want to spend more time in investing in those those processes and systems uh mm. than maybe we did at certain times right um so maybe that was a, a lesson learned but um you know the 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 uh it, it's it's been a very exciting process yeah uh there's uh and i think uh you can't go wrong by by surrounding yourself with people who are better and smarter than you are it's yeah. a timeless Um, You know, a success factor, but I think, like, I I go back to the cultural piece because it's so important. Um, If to create a high-performing team, people have to be able to work together, Mm -hmm. and and it's it's um, like your values and your culture is like the glue that holds everything together. Yeah. And like Peter Drucker, who's a very famous strategy guru, said, "Culture eats strategy for breakfast." Hmm. I believe that in and out because it is. Is fundamental there was a, a Google study that was done where uh, I think Google was trying to f- figure out why certain teams were high-performing teams and why other teams were not yeah and and it was a very extensive study and, and you can find the results online but Google looked at many many different factors things like like the the, the leader of those groups um, you know the how, like how they work together and it's interesting what what the what came out of it was, was actually not one particular thing, like, like a leader or a framework. It was more like that the, the, the high-performing groups were simply the groups
1: that were able to work together the best. Mm. Mm. So that goes back to that collaborative approach that uh, you guys had in, in the UK and sort of that same experience over Absolutely. here, right? Instead so of try to have silos, actually getting Great. everyone involved. Uh, it makes, I know for, from my own experience, right, when I've worked on teams in the past or when you've led teams in the past, if everyone buys in, you always end up with greater results results than if just a few people buy it and some people are I don't know if I want to do this right? well that's
2: it and so like with any with any team or any project or any job there's always going to be ups and down's right and and I think your culture I think it really comes out when when, when you're going through the downs right H- how do you how do you deal with adversity
1: so can you give us a specific example then as to some of the times or either in your business or on a specific project there was a some unexpected hurdle that came about and how you and your team sort of dealt with that that hurdle sure
2: so you know i i've, I've developed a few philosophies right while being in business yeah and uh, maybe it's because your perspective is a little different when when you're an owner of a company and everything lands at your feet good and bad mm-hmm. right you you as, a, as the owner you wear everything total right? accountability yes totally right and there's, there's no place yeah. to go so uh um, you know, so let's see, I, I, I think that our greatest asset in, the, in this industry is time. Mm. I think when, and our, our job, right, to succeed, to do well in this industry, you have to be good at managing risk. And so uh, what that means is you have to be able to identify risks early and act on them early because when you, when you can act on things early, then you have maximum time to find efficient solutions. Yeah. Right. If if you if you're landed with problems, you know when you're into construction or when you're up against a deadline, you're in reaction you, mode. You are. Like mm-hmm. you, yeah. you, your only solution at that stage is really to uh, is to use expensive solutions. Right. And and that's not in anyone's interest. So so a large part of what we do uh, revolves around uh, identifying and managing risks early, early, early. So still um,
0: carrying on some of that Honda philosophy of everybody meeting at the in the morning, planning out four weeks in advance, that that type of thing.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And and the other part of it is that um, you know we're we're going to make mistakes as we go. There's always going to be mistakes, but the the key is to learn from those mistakes, right? And if if you have a a culture of uh, blaming people, yeah, mm-hmm. no no one's going to come forward with mistakes. Right. Yep. And, and you're never going you're never, you're never to find out about certain mistakes and you're never right. going to learn from them. Right. Mm-hmm. And you're never going to have the hearts and minds of your staff.
0: Right. So, so more letting your staff know, it's not, it's, it's not going to be a big deal as long as you tell me about it and there's communication right. and we yeah. work to resolve
2: it. Right. So if, if someone makes a mistake, that's okay. Yeah. You know, tell me about it. But if you make a mistake and don't tell me about it until the 11th hour, then I'll have yeah. a serious problem with it yeah. Yeah. because then you, you, own, you own that mistake. If if if, you're, if if someone's experiencing an issue, bring it forward. You no, know? like it's okay to ask for help. It's Did okay. Like I'd rather have someone ask for help than not ask for help, because if if someone needs help, uh, doesn't ask for it, they're essentially watching themselves fail.
0: Yeah, and, and mm-hmm.
2: I'm not in the business. Like, we're we're not in the business of watching ourselves fail. Yeah. So so we put in place uh, a reporting structure uh, and processes that that flag problems early. So we can deal with them early, regardless of whose fault it is, where yeah. it came from. You just, the, the key is to is to know about it early, so you can have control over it early.
1: Mm-hmm. Right?
2: Can you and, and then learn from it.
0: Right, right. Um, can you tell us about a time, maybe, uh, maybe in the earlier days, and you know, maybe you had sixteen backup plans, but even the sixteenth one failed. Like, was there a time when, like, there was a huge challenge and can you tell us a little bit about something like that?
2: Well, you know, there's in this industry, you're always throwing curveballs. Yeah. Right. Uh, you can you can plan and plan and plan, yeah. uh, but at the end of the day, your plan is always going to change. Right. You, you still have to plan. You still have to do it. There's no excuse for not planning. You, you have to plan. Yeah. Just that, but you know that your plan is going to change. Yeah. So, so you got to build in some contingencies, and you've got to continually tweak the plan. Right. Right. So that you can adapt to the changing environment. Right. Um, you know, we, we, we did a project for the um, the Delta Chelsea Hotel, which is now called the Eaton Chelsea Hotel. Okay. This this was a really interesting project. It was an exterior refurbishment. Whereabouts? The Whereabouts? North Tower, so Marcus? Young and Gerard.
0: Okay, okay, yeah.
2: So the, the project uh, involved uh, a total exterior refurbishment, roofing, yeah. balconies. We, we had to replace four kilometers of balcony handrails. We had uh, to refurbish four kilometers of lineal... Balcony, as part of this contract, wow. because yeah. there's 26 stories in that building, so so this was a project that was all in the exterior, so it was very weather sensitive. So partway through the project, we we uh, we we were hit by the ice storm.
1: Oh, right. What
2: year was this? This was I think it was 2013. Okay. So we were hit by the ice storm, right?
1: Yes. And so yeah.
2: it 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 had a huge impact on the project for several reasons. Like one reason is that the the hotel uh, became fully booked. Ah, right? right. Because during <laughs> construction we were we were leaving out we we were approaching it on a floor by floor, floor basis, yeah. So the floor we were working on was left uh, unoccupied because yeah. there was a little bit of noise. So the client filled up the entire entire hotel. So first, secondly was obviously the weather effects because uh, we had we had ice you know accumulating on the building. Yeah. And then also the, the labor challenges, the, the productivity issues. So we ended up changing mm. our, our approach. We're using uh, mass climbers. Uh, we, we began to fall behind schedule, but we developed some alternate means and methods of accessing the the works. Yeah. We started using uh, several crews, like suspended off of swing stages. Wow. Wow. And, and so we were actually able to complete the project on schedule, e- even though our our, uh, our our original approach was significantly disrupted. Yeah. And, and then I think there was a very minor cost impact from it. It was really, it was hardly even significant. So, uh, but again, we had a client who was understanding, who wow. actually worked with us to try mm. to find
1: solutions.
0: Yeah, even even when you could have easily given the excuse, I mean, uh, what do they call it? Um, the force majeure, an act of God, or you can't right. control right. that. So you yeah. could have easily, it's impressive that you pulled it off. A- absolutely.
2: But uh, you know, in in, in, in recent years, you know, uh, I've, my company has started to get into a new type of contract delivery, which is called integrated project delivery or IPD, which I mentioned yeah. before. Yeah. And, and IPD, interestingly, begins to formalize many of these lean and sort of collaborative practices that I was talking about. Yeah. Um, where uh, before these things were talked about, but they weren't really hardwired into any kind of agreement. Right. And, and uh, you know, I'm very excited with IPD. I think it's, it's potentially transformational for our industry in a very positive way. Uh, our industry really needs help to and, and it needs help from owners, it needs help from consultants, it needs help from you know, trade contractors, everybody who interfaces with this industry right. I think it needs to really to participate in in raising the the standards and, and the level of awareness.
0: Okay. What what would be a main difference, like on a day to day basis, between a company using IPD and uh, the other company?
2: Yeah, so so um, with with traditional contracts, the the GC or the construction manager enters into subcontracts. Mm-hmm. Each of those subcontractors um, is really only interested in its own profit center. Mm-hmm. So even though the GC right has got to deliver the project the by project. a certain yep. like they they're they're they're, they're uh, They're committed to a certain schedule, yeah, and they've got to deliver a certain scope for for a price. The the, the trades don't really care; they don't really care about the overall schedule. They right. just care about making their profit, right? And so, it, it's it's interesting because in, in business, one of the things you learn in business school, like in strategy, which is not that complicated, but if uh, you know the essence of strategy is is you know articulating a vision, right, and creating objectives. And then cascading those objectives through every part of your company. Right. So that everybody is aligned, every department's aligned on
1: achieving the overarching objectives. Right. It doesn't happen in construction. So how do you foster that sort of buy-in approach by the trades to make sure that their vision is aligned and that they do buy in w- with your vision?
2: So so the interesting thing about IPD, integrated project delivery, is that it creates that alignment. So under an IPD form of contract the The general contractor, or called the construction manager, mm. and the key trades are all party to a single agreement, mm. right? Okay. And and furthermore, the consulting team, like the designers, are also part of that. They're also party to that single agreement.
0: So, what does that mean? They do better if you do better, something like that.
2: So, so the that whole team is incentivized to deliver the client's objectives, and, the, and they're incentivized financially. Hmm. so the so once you sign that contract, that entire team puts their profit into a pool, yeah, and they put their profit at risk, so that the the only way that team can earn its profit is if the whole team delivers the project on time and on budget wow wow, and so if they if if they deliver over budget, the overage eats into the team's profit so that less profit is distributed at the end of the project. Hmm. Right? but what 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 that creates though is a kind of behavior that you just don't see on projects normally because you you see teamwork you see trades mm-hmm. working with each other working with consultants to solve problems yeah what, when often in traditional construction when problems arise there's often it's pointing that a game that yes. you're talking about it's yeah it's his fault it's his fault yeah and, and clients are often stuck in the middle not knowing who to believe and how to handle it mm-hmm. and and it's it's actually a uh, it, it's very much a, a problem that's crystallized by, by the current setup of contracts. And, and, and this, this, the solution is IPD. It, it's, it's a very effective solution. So that's one of the things. But also there's a whole bunch of other lean philosophies and, and management tools and processes and practices that, that come into, come into IPD. Yeah. There's a huge emphasis on planning, but, but planning in a way that's collaborative. Like rather than me, Sort of dictate a schedule, right? We we bring we bring everyone together and as a team we work out how we're going to deliver the schedule and then we, and then we keep people accountable for their yeah. Periods.
0: I imagine you could be much you could deliver jobs much faster if everybody's working together. You know, I'm trying to absolutely.
2: There's enormous productivity gains, mm-hmm. enormous gains, and that's why when you deliver a project on schedule, usually everybody makes money, right? Because you've you've successfully delivered it. Um, so there's a, there's a huge emphasis on, on planning, on management, on some of these sort of working practices, like HONDA employees, mm-hmm. those are used in, in IPD. There's also a heavy emphasis on technology. So we use uh, BIM, like Building Information Modeling, okay. to, to uh, design the work, to coordinate it, and to use it for construction planning as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Because you're know, you, using, if, if, you, if you're not using BIM, it's like walking through a forest at night without a flashlight. So what is going to you're going to bump into? What is, what is BIM? So so BIM is is, is uh, an acronym. It stands for Building Information Modeling. Okay. So that there are new software systems that allow you to to, to build or to design design your, your facility, you know, virtually. You can design hmm. it within an integrated model. Hmm. So within this, this virtual model. Um, you're designing in three dimensions, and you're also incorporating all design disciplines into one integrated model. So, so um, uh, before BIM, people were using CAD, yep. right? CAD, CAD files, like two CAD dimensions. CAD drawings, so an architect yep. would design in two dimensions, and then their their mechanical consultant, electrical, structural consultants right. would also design in two dimensions. Mm-hmm. The problem is that they're, they're they're all using in some cases different they're different drawings. Right, and so when those drawings come together, you find that that hmm. frequently, on this based on this two D model, there's coordination issues. Things don't work like they're supposed to. Yeah. When when you design in one integrated model, one virtual model, and you're designing in three D, um, I think coordination issues are much more apparent, and and you find those issues much earlier than you would using traditional two D uh, instruments. So. Going back to my comments on risk management, it means that you can find problems early, you can deal with them early. You're just making little changes on paper rather than trying to make changes in the field when it's very, very uh, costly and time-consuming.
0: And are our other GCs a lot slower to adopt these this technology, or like is this one of the
2: reasons that that you guys have been growing so quickly? Or well, I would say for us, uh, we 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 have a BIM department. Yeah, and so we have a BIM capability, and uh, I'm, I'm very excited with this because it means we can do our job way better than yeah. we did before. Yeah, we're better equipped to do it. And so, um, you know, William Gibson said the, um, again, like the if the sort of the future is already here. It's just not yeah. evenly distributed. Yeah, BIM. yeah. And so there, what you find in this industry is that there's a huge range of abilities, like the, the top tier GCs. Are very sophisticated, right, with their use of BIM, and then and then some of the maybe the smaller GCs um, never even heard of it, right. And so there's a very wide degree of, of uh, variation, um, but I I think you know BIM um, offers value. I think in I would say in almost every scenario in terms yeah. of
1: design and construction, and
2: so uh, really like BIM needs to be
1: leveraged by everybody in the space. Hmm. Aside from uh, BIM, what are the new technologies that you're seeing in the GC space or that have been effective in the past to sort of shape now and the future for the construction and GC industry?
2: Right. Well, I'd say we've seen huge benefit from uh, prefabrication and panelization, um, and, and this could be things like structural building components, building envelope components, um, e- even um, uh, like mechanical systems. Um, one, one of our projects, we, 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 we built the engineering building for York University. It's called the Bergeron Center. Yeah. Um, this this was a um, this, this was a fast track project. We, we built it in essentially 23 months, um, and this project was uh, just under a hundred million dollars. It, it was built at lightning speed, and one of the ways we were able to do that is because we prefabbed a lot of the mechanical systems mm. and, and some of the, the other uh, like the building envelope systems. So, but, but the, a lot of our mechanical distribution was, was, was uh, prefab. So, we had piping on racks. Hmm. We had um, a mechanical plant that, that was built on sort of pallets and, and steel frames. And this stuff was, was designed and built off site. And it was brought on site, hoisted into position, connected, and that was it. Right. And so, that, that kind of technology is, is extremely beneficial. But I, th- I see now industry leveraging that. I see more, more opportunities mm-hmm. for those efficiencies. Interestingly, we're following the European evolution as well. This is, this is how it works in Europe. Uh, there are, I, think, I think they're ahead of us in terms of prefab and panelizing. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm happy to see the industry moving in this direction. I, I think there's huge gains to be made just in how we organize ourselves. Yeah. Just some of the things I was talking about, about IPD. There's huge gains to be made just in how we, we can work together using lean philosophies. And so uh, I think the industry generally is just really in its infancy around that.
1: Interesting. One other question uh, that I hear all the time from developers is, and people that own properties is well, condo prices have increased over the past 10 years, almost year over year, right? Mm. So. Given that increase in condo prices, there's oftentimes uh, what we've seen in the past is an increase in costs as well that are unrelated to that increase in, in condo prices. So what has that trend in the past, why, why has those costs interest, increased in the past in terms of hard costs, soft costs, where do you see those, thing, those going in the future and how do you mitigate against the rising costs?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, you know, I, I deal with a lot of clients, a lot of private developers um, you know, public sector clients, and everyone struggles with these increases in cost. Um, you know, I think there's I think there's a few things that are going on. Like, one is that um, labor costs like always go up. Yeah. You know, there, there's there's you know the, the the very large GCs have union agreements, and within the union agreements, there are uh, increases in cost that are built in, um, mm. and so that 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 drives a large part of the marketplace. So. Um, so every year, there, there's there's an increase that's, you know, somewhat in line with inflation, uh, but it, it's renegotiated every three or four years. Um, so so there's increasing labor cost all the time. On top of that, there's there's fluctuations um, just with commodity prices, mm-hmm. uh, in, in foreign exchange rates. Yeah. So that's always going to cause. Recently, there's been the tariffs with yep, down, down in the o. U.S. Oh. So uh, from our perspective, you know the. The cost of structural steel, has just the supply cost, has gone up by about 40% in the last year. (laughs) But we've also seen very substantial increases with glass, drywall, masonry. Um, In some of these cases, there are some supply and demand effects, but where, where, say for example, masonry, masons are very busy right now. Mm. Um, It's hard to get masons just to look at pricing projects. And so there, some of the cost increase probably is related to just supply and demand. Right. Maybe certain trades just being very busy and and increasing their rates because they can. But I, I don't think that's typical across the board, though, because um, I also hear from many trades who say that they're not very busy right now and then mm-hmm. they're they, they're looking for work. So you hear different things from different people in different marketplaces. Yeah. So it, it, it's it's still very much. Um, a marketplace that that's um, somewhat fragmented. It's it's um, uh, there's a lot of variation between local regions, mm. and, and it's just it's and it's a dynamic marketplace. Things are always changing. So um, in terms of you know where it's going to go, um, I, I I see you know a, a growing shortage right of of um, residential units. I, I think I think that's going to play out in terms of increased competition. It, yeah. may, it may result in increases in costs, or the price point, it's hard to say, because I think a lot of buyers are already at their limit of affordability. Yeah. So it's hard to predict where it's going to go, but I think certainly there's going to be more demand and supply for uh, housing in the Toronto area. Right. I think we're going to see further, I um, uh, think, expansion of the markets outside of Toronto. I think Kitchener, Waterloo, Hamilton, Barrie, I think those markets will, will accelerate. Yeah. But overall, I don't think I don't think supply will keep up with demand. Um, how things will play out going forward, um, I, I think construction costs will continue to go up. I hope they don't go up um, quickly because uh, that that may kill projects. Right. And if, if yep. projects die, that's no good for anybody in the development, or design, or construction industry. Yeah. I mean, this let just, alone
0: the people who need the
1: housing. Absolutely,
2: yep. absolutely. Yeah. So I, I can see. An increase in cost but I, I, I really hope it's not it's not as rapid as we've seen in recent years
0: mm-hmm. um, you want to do the three truths and then
2: thank you
1: go ahead. I like that one go
0: ahead um, okay so this question is called the three truths we're gonna we're gonna wrap things Uh-oh. up this, this question is called the three truths so uh, imagine years from now uh, you are on your deathbed and uh, you now. <laughs> several years from now imagine years from now Many years from now, you're on your deathbed, and uh, your whole family's around you, and you had a wonderful life, lived to be 150. Um, kids, grandkids, everybody's there. Uh, but for some reason, everything that you've you've written down, uh, recorded, including this interview, um, it's it's not there anymore. Um, and everybody loves you, and they they come and say, Marcus, um, you have you know just a minute left. Can you can you write us down three notes of? How you think about life? How you think about construction? How you think about everything? To pass along. <laughs> what do you think?
2: Uh, you know what? Uh, that's interesting. I, I, I don't know. I, I would say, you know, seize the moment. Yeah. Like, don't wait. Yeah. Never wait. Just seize the moment. That's one. Um, you know, when when I before I started my company, uh, I actually uh, thought I was taking a big risk. Right. Right. But in retrospect, I think it would have been much riskier to just to keep doing what I was doing. Right. Right. So I, I so I would say, you know, take the risk. Yeah. Right. Ha, have confidence in yourself. Take mm. that risk. Mm. And then I would also say, take some time to enjoy the trip, enjoy the process along the way. Yeah. Right. And so because that, that, that's another. It's not enough sort of that. Factor as well, you know, mm-hmm. just with. with um, Starting the new business, I thought, you know, I, I want to have fun. I want to enjoy this. Yeah. Life's too short, right? And so I, I do try to take moments to enjoy the the ride. Right. I could think I could probably do a better job, but yeah, I would encourage everybody just enjoy the ride.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, awesome. You got one more.
1: <laughs> that was sweet. Was, was, <laughs> was that? Okay. Yeah. That's. I mean,
0: that was yeah. yeah. that's that that really good. So, um, okay. Well, I think. Uh, I mean, thank you so much for being here. I, I know that uh, the audience has certainly taken a lot from this, and uh, you know, I would encourage uh, anybody in the industry uh, who is you know, hoping to learn more about construction or perhaps has a project for Marcus to definitely reach out, um, and uh, yeah, thank you so much.
2: My pleasure. I would just say we, 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 need, we need great people in this industry. We need people to step up and, and be the change that we need in this industry. So I would encourage people just to to participate, do their part, and uh, you know I'm always happy just to to have a chat. So yeah. you know my door is always open. Appreciate that. Thanks very much, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Marcus.
0: Thanks. That is the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you got some value from this. If you like these types of videos, we will be putting out more videos every single week. So subscribe if you wanna get the notification when they come out. And see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.